Hey, folks, this is your host, Arthi, Arthi Shahani, with WBEZ's Art of Power. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners who made today's episode happen. Porna Jagannathan is a dazzling actor. You may have seen her starring in the Netflix hit by Mindy Kaling, Never Have I Ever. If you ever use the B word with me again, not only will you never drive the moped, you will never drive, period, because you will be dead. Or Hulu's Rami, or HBO's The Night Of with Riz Ahmed. Porna reached out to tell me, hey, I've got a hero you should feature on your podcast. She is a globally acclaimed playwright director named Yael Farber. I've never worked with someone like Yael before. I never think I will work with anyone like Yael again. Considering who Porna has worked with, that's saying a lot. You know, your podcast is about power and what she harnesses is the power of truth. What you hear a lot of narratives out in society is that there's so much gray in truth, there's so much this in truth, it depends on whose perspective. There's always a muddying of this concept of truth, and then you kind of fall for it. But the truth is we are all born equal. So that's the core that she's working with. Yael Farber is widely and deeply respected in the world of theater. In our conversation, you'll hear why. She is a truth teller and understands something a lot of us want to, how to get people to care. So thank you, Porna, for the recommendation. And if you, listening right now, if you have a guest recommendation, we want to hear it. Details on how are in the credits. All right, enjoy the episode. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Yael Farber is white, which I'm saying right off the bat because it's an important detail in this story, her story. South Africa was... um a very particular place to grow up in. Some might call it a crime against humanity. Others might call it an offense against human dignity. In theory, we have nothing against integration. It's only a matter of practical policy in this country. Yael grew up in the apartheid era. That's when white politicians in the country created a caste system based on skin color. With two generations of apartheid serving to isolate whites from all but the most superficial contact with blacks, South Africa is a nation divided by ignorance, fear, and racial prejudice. White Afrikaners banned interracial relationships. They evicted and relocated black South Africans into segregated neighborhoods. Often we see the bulldozers, I mean, and people's houses are bulldozed. Policies that resulted in protest. Let's continue this Crackdowns. We and massacres. The police said they were using birdshot designed to wound. 69 people were killed. three colored youths were killed outright before they could take cover. Yael tells me that her reality was very different from that of South Africans living even just a couple miles away. We weren't entirely unaware 
But the newspapers, the televisions, what we were told at school, um, very rarely crossed what they would call the colour line. And, you know, in a more benign sense, uh, we were simply told that everything was okay, that there were reasons for the way the country was. Um, I remember very clearly when I was six years old asking my teacher why it was that we were organized societally like we were that's not how I asked it of course but um, <laughs> and uh, and I remember my teacher telling me um, the story about Cain and Abel and saying that um, that it was ordained that this that mm. things were as they were meant to be what, what was your reaction I went home and I, I thought about that and I, um, I, I believe I asked um, my father and my father was um, from parents that got out of Lithuania before the Holocaust disappeared, everybody. Mm. And he was first-generation South African. And he mm. said, um, you know, when you're a bit older, we'll speak about what all of that means. But it's not, it's not as bad as it seems, and it's not as good as it seems. And I, and I think he didn't want to frighten me, but I could feel it didn't add up. And so, you know, it was a place in which um, I began to sense more and more that the truth was simply not available. Do you think that was a generational thing? Do you believe that you were alongside your peers experiencing that dissonance? Or do you feel like you were surrounded by many people who did not, who were your age? Um, I would say that in right up to high school, right up to graduation, the, the racism that was, was more common than not amongst my peers was so stunningly um, full frontal. There wasn't even a shame about it for, for a large part, but there were people among, among my peers, and there were one or two teachers who understood. What you're describing, you're a person, you're a citizen, who lives in a culture where the political voices the pop culture, the news media, they keep signaling to you, everything's just fine. But you have these inklings on the ground from what you see maybe from the corner of your eye, from what you see when a certain person enters your sphere for a split second. You keep seeing it's not true. It's not fine. Yeah, as a child, I would say the inklings were there. By the time I was, you know, 13, 14, I was astonished that it wasn't immediately apparent and raising levels of outrage amongst the people that were close to me. Um, when I was about 16, I, I, I formed an organization with my sister and a couple of friends um, in an effort to try to meet people um, across this barrier. And, um, and we attracted the attention of, you know, the security police in the country. Um, and they, you know, they, they turned their attention on us. I mean, this is how, you know, a couple of 16-year-olds who... Like a high school student group. High school yeah. student group who, you know, anything that posed the smallest perforation in the shield of the narrative that had been woven um, got immediate and swift attention. Um, and of course, our white skins protected us from that, um, you know, meaning any real uh, clear and present danger. But it, one or two of my peers who were involved in the group, um, one of their parents actually called the, the security police in on their daughter. So, you know, there, it was, it was um, I'd like to say that it was generational, but, but I, it, it wasn't. 
one event stuck with the IL at an early age. In 1976, a group of black school children led a massive demonstration in Soweto. A huge black township outside Johannesburg. On June the 16th, Soweto's school children gathered in protest against the introduction of compulsory teaching in Afrikaans, the main dialect of the ruling white minority. As many as 20,000 participated in the protest. Police met students with brutal force. Dozens, possibly hundreds, were shot and killed. School children were, were getting um, murdered with not live ammunition mm. by the police. And I remember smoke on the horizon, um, and I remember asking my parents about it. And the brutality, I, just, I could sense the brutality of what was happening. Once again, it didn't add up. Um, and of course, as I entered into adolescence, early, early adolescence, um, the, the, the dissonance turned into a clarity and a rage. It comes back to that uh, apathy is the zero quantity that helps the stronger party in an unequal struggle. Um, you know, that apathy is the, um, the deadliest form um, of complicity. Yael, how do you explain your awareness then that, you know, as you describe just candidly, no, it wasn't a generational movement, plenty of your peers uh, who were white ate up the narrative of those in power. So how do you explain that you didn't? Do you have any explanation for that? Like, why, why does that come from you? Um, I think it's one of the great mysteries. I, I don't know what, you know, where, where the boundaries of nature and nurture lie. But I do know that what makes us aware of sadness from very early on in our life chimes a chord in us. And if it doesn't, we are not built that way. You know, they say the, um, the world is a, a comedy to those that think and a tragedy to those that feel. And I've always just <laughs> been a feeler, you know, I've just always been a feeler. I, I engage in a, in a process of empathy involuntarily. Um, and it sounds, you know, like uh, some kind of heroic state of being. It isn't at all. I think it's really just... It sounds exhausting, in fact. It, yes, I, I, it, it is. What strikes me about your experience is that you are this basically empath is what you're describing. Um, you have a lot of empathy. You don't know how to box it in. But you find an outlet for it that has proven to be remarkably productive, that outlet being theater. Yes. Yeah. Explain a little bit how that happened. Um. Well, first of all, when I was 13, I read Arthur Miller's The Crucible in the bath of all places. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, just, I didn't come out for hours. And um, finally, my mother, you know, hammered down the door. And you turned into a raisin. I turned into a raisin, absolutely, <laughs> granny fingers. And right. I, I couldn't believe that somebody had concentrated the essence, the arc of that discovery of who we are when the hour comes that we have to show ourselves. Theater is, in a sense... Uh, the, the stripping away until you're down to the wire on um, a singular experience, the radical singularity of an individual experience. And when that trajectory is exposing how we finally must know ourselves, for better or for worse, when we have to lay everything on the line, when we have to stand up for others, when we have to tell the truth... Um, I, you know, I witnessed this for the first time in such an extraordinarily eloquent way 
through the character of John Proctor in The Crucible. And I was just struck blind by the, the power of this, the power it had over me. And I could feel it like an energy in me that there was a possibility that I could shepherd such an experience into the world. I mean, I was very young then, but I, I could feel it as a, as a currency inside my body. I'm going to interrupt here just to say that we all know that stories are powerful, but this is one of the clearest explanations I have ever heard for what exactly is their power. To concentrate the essence of a person or society in a moment of truth, to hold a mirror, a collective and unflattering mirror to an audience that didn't quite see it that way before. Stories, and for Yael Theater, can create a place where we examine our humanity, or lack thereof, a uniquely safe space to do so. And then when I was a teenager, I, you know, I went to watch theatre at the Market Theatre, which is a very famous theatre in South Africa that saw much of the, the birth of, of protest theatre. Um, and certainly carried the protest theatre flag through the 80s. And I felt like it was this tiny island of of sanity and truth. Uh, you know, I, I felt like, oh, I trust this. I trust what I'm being told here. Plays were very quickly banned there. But I, I caught the fever then. I, I felt like, oh, this is what I want to do. Why specifically do you choose the role of director? Why is that the right role for you? Mm. I was an actress when I when I began in the theatre industry. I studied directing and acting at university, but the path of least resistance for a young woman um, coming out of drama school was to perform rather than to mm. lead. But I could feel that the jacket didn't quite fit and I couldn't do what I deeply value in the actors that I, I know set me on fire when I witnessed them. And I've always been someone who processes pain and story in a particular way. Uh, Meaning? I, I empathize and I feel things. I feel very closely to the bone. But there's another part of my brain that is working to understand, I think it's because of the country I grew up in. What, oh, why did that make me cry and that didn't? Oh, why, you know, why, why did the audience laugh at that moment in the show that I'm watching and didn't? In the, why has this newspaper article created an outrage and that incident went unnoticed, which is so much worse? I, I, I know I was in many rooms, you know, as an actor, where I felt deeply frustrated because I just felt like the person at the helm didn't... They just kept missing the moments where we could have turned a corner and taken mm. this into a into a, into another stratosphere, and 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 you know, finally, I think it's about. Um, I have things to say. I can hear the music, but my role is not to sing or to play the instrument. Um, I'm there to conduct in the storm. Um, and um, I actually had a friend, um, Lara Foot, who is um, who came to see me um, performing in something. She was a director and. Um, after the show, she just looked at me with her very, very bright blue eyes and said to me, when are you going to stop being a mediocre actress and be the great director that you can be? And it was another one of those terrible, <laughs> agonizing bumps in the road where I, I went home and I like, you know, I heaved in my bed and I, you know, and, and a week later I emerged going, she's absolutely on the money. I was like, give up. 
the mediocre obvious path for That's right. the one not carved out for you, That's but right. possibly the one you might thrive in. That's right. What right. happened to me in the bath when I was reading The Crucible? I wasn't dreaming of being John Proctor. I was dreaming of bringing all those voices and instruments into the right... I could hear the music in the text. I could hear how it needed to crescendo. I could hear how we could tear it open, that the audience would leave changed at a molecular level. Um, and so that's, that's my love. That's my, my, besides my daughter, that's my devotion. <laughs> In recent years, Yael Farber made a production of The Crucible, a play about America's Salem witch trials that was utterly explosive. I freeze! I freeze! It is a witch! A witch! It swept up awards for Best Revival and Best Director. It became one of the most successful productions ever to play at the Old Vic in London. How can I live without my name? I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. Yael also poured herself into another kind of play, testimonial theater. In testimonial theater, the playwright interviews a person or a group of people who have experienced something traumatic. Then the playwright gets to creative writing, adding metaphor and carefully curating language to capture the experience of the survivor. Then, this is pretty wild, the survivor delivers their own story back to the audience. Testimonial theater is journalism meets poetry meets personal monologue. When I ask Yael about it, though, she is quick to point out a danger in it. There's a wonderful Rilke quote that a work of art can only be judged out of its necessity. And I think that's really what has to guide testimonial theatre. Um, it can be a, a predatorial endeavour if one is searching for... I've had students and uh, theatre practitioners say to me, but where where can I find the stories to create testimonial theatre out of? And then I, I say, don't. <laughs> don't go near it. And why do you say that? Because if you're asking that question, then... Well, you're in pursuit of something that you need, um, as opposed to asking where voice is needed. Mm. You know, you've inverted the equation, and mm. it's become about you finding something so that you can be served by it instead of serving it. Mm. Yael says in her early days as a director, before she dove into testimonial theater, she skirted overtly political topics. And this was at a time in the late 1990s, when international condemnation of apartheid was reaching its peak. Despite her values, she didn't wade into the unfolding global conversation about her homeland. I had a very particular experience in Harlem, um, where I was on a panel talking about my work, and a gentleman in the audience, elderly, said to me, um, tell me the news you can bring about that mess that your country's in. He said, that's the only thing I want to hear from you because you clearly have a capacity to talk and to mm. speak and to story things. So mm. why, why are you up there if you're not talking about where you come from? And your reaction? Oh, I, I was quiet for a moment and, I, and then I think I said to him, I need to... I need to sit with that, and I just want to thank you for saying that to me. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it was a, it was a profound, it was intensely uncomfortable for a couple of days. That's when I know something important is, is happening inside me when it's kind of really hard to sit with something because I realized I had drifted into being a working director, but I had forgotten why I have pursued this particular calling. It can be good when someone gets under your skin. That little exchange in Harlem, it relit the fire. I approached a, um, an actress, uh, an actor, Tembium Charlie, um, and asked her if she was open to telling her story, and I would work as a writer to strip it down to its essence so that the language could potently and powerfully tell in a succinct way the experiences she had lived. Under apartheid. Under apartheid, that's right. Tembi Matshali Jones is a famous South African actor and singer. But before she got her break, she was a domestic worker in apartheid South Africa. She had been a little girl in the rural areas of KwaZulu-Natal waiting for her mother to visit her once a year because her mother was working in, um, in homes um, in, in the white suburbs. And then she herself became um, a woman who was looking after white people's children while her own daughter waited at home and her sister was giving her breast to her daughter dry um, just to keep her daughter busy until Tembi got home. Um, um, you know, just if we just bring it down to among women, what it means to be a mother um, and to live closely alongside each other and to not be able to understand the agony of leaving your child behind. Tembi agreed to work with Yael on a play about her life as a black South African under apartheid. They co-wrote it. It was called A Woman in Waiting. My sister, breastfed my baby, while I took care of you. It debuted in 1999, just a few years after the end of apartheid, and it won a lot of awards. It was a one-woman play, Bembi starred and Yael directed, and it documented Bembi's experience caring for a white family's children. May God protect my children from you. And so your first experience of doing this with a, a black South African woman who was both an actor and a caretaker under apartheid experience, not being able to nurse her own child because she's feeding another child in a different township. What did that do for you? I, I think for both of us, there was an experience of um, understanding the absurdity of the lives we had all led in this insane social experiment that had been put together by the architects of apartheid. Mm -hmm. that levels of inhumanity could be reached where you could actually lose touch with the suffering that was around you, even inside yourself. And I, I, it just, it basically was, um, it was a formative experience for me in understanding uh, that there was a particular kind of theatre that I needed to pursue. And that was not to say necessarily testimonial theatre, but I needed to offer, as a beneficiary of privileges that had been afforded me by the system, I wanted to be a part of contributing in any way that I could to telling stories that had so far remained in the silence. After 
after the break, the country India becomes the focus of global attention, and Yael Farber uproots her life because she needs to be there. It's like an aperture that opens for a brief moment, and while people are feeling, we got to get in there. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Yael Farber had a stable job in Montreal, teaching and running the program at the National Theatre School of Canada. She was a single mother to a five-year-old girl. She had just written another play about the injustices of apartheid. And then a horrific event in India captured the world's attention. It was 2012, and it drew Yael to that country. We're about to dive into a topic that's going to be really tough for a lot of you to listen to and not appropriate for small children. Rape. Police have arrested two men for the brutal gang rape of a young girl in a moving bus in the national capital, a case that's evoked national outrage. All these people, of course, demanding that the rapist should be hanged. That's the kind of sentiment we are getting. A patient who had been airlifted here early in the week, passed away at 4.45 a.m. this morning. The victim was a young woman, Jyoti Singh Pandey, a medical student. She died, and seven months later, you were directing a play about her as well as other women who'd been raped, who'd been assaulted. Tell me a little bit about how that play came to be. I uh, read about uh, Jyoti Singh Pandey's death um, on Facebook, uh, or perhaps I read it in the New York Times, I can't remember, but the news broke. um, And I went onto Facebook and I just posted a picture of her and I just said, my daughter, my mother, myself. Um, Mm. And uh, Purna Jagannathan, um, we were Facebook friends, but we had never met. And she had seen um, my work in New York. And Purna is uh, the actor, perhaps currently best known as the mom in Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever. That's right. And she reached out and she she said, um, you need to come here. The streets are exploding and we need Hmm. you. And I said, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really understand where she was. I thought she was actually in America. And um, and she said, no, no, I'm, I'm in India. And I will pay. I will find the money. But you have to come out here. And I said, well, I have a five-year-old daughter. And she said, bring her. <laughs> so wow. I just got on the next plane and went to India. Yael quit her job. She got on a plane. She arrived in Delhi with her daughter. Actor Purna Jagannathan was waiting at the airport, little white flowers in hand, to greet them. They set to work on making a piece of testimonial theater. They would call it 
Nirbhaya. That's the pseudonym the Indian press gave to Jyoti Singh Pandey in order to protect her identity in the immediate aftermath of the 2012 brutal attack. Nirbhaya roughly translates to fearless. And then, as I understand it, um, she and you begin meeting together along with a handful of other women to discuss their own experience of being raped or sexually abused. That's right. That that initial group were an amazing group of women, um, some who said that they had experienced sexual violence, some who didn't. But in fact, as our discussions unfolded, um, some of the experiences that they didn't consider to be sexual violence, I immediately understood how implicit um, sexual violence can be to the point that we, we, we may not even consider this to be the case. Mm. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, a hand, a hand up your dress when you're 12 years old on the train. Um, mm. You know, if you're growing up in, in, in Mumbai, certainly in the time that these women came up, is part of the course. Um, mm. And something to be, um, you know, it's 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 admonished, or shoes will be thrown at the person who did it, or but you're not go. There's not. Going you would to- never say you were sexual assaulted for no. simply being groped. No. Mm-hmm. At any rate, it became very clear to me that I needed to use the space along with Purna and the woman that we would choose to be a part of the project to make sure that a certain range of experiences was presented on stage that neither sanitized nor sensationalized but told the truth. How do you then, as a collector of truths that have been up until this moment silenced, how do you as a collector of these truths know when to push and when to step back? Can you give me an example along those lines? Directing is listening. It's listening. Leading is listening. Sneha uh, Javali, who was a dowry bride, and there was an, att- an attempt to take her life by her husband at the time and um, her brother-in-law because they had been pressing for more dowry um, and her family had not been able to come up with um, ever-increasing demands. As she told us the story of how they set her on fire, and this is, this is all in the, in the play, it's, it's a bit like a pilot that flies through turbulence. Um, mm. You don't want the pilot to come on and bullshit you and tell you that, you know, the weather is, is fine. Um, and at the same time, you, you don't want to hear the pilot in their own agony um, mm. and despair at what's ahead. Mm-hmm. And yet you want to know that there is a human who is at the wheel um, and understands what's at stake. Mm. And is it fair to say then that then you see that empowering her to open up more? I think she feels witnessed. Um, I don't want to speak for Sneha, but um, I I, I think there is nothing more powerful than being witnessed. It's what finally collapses all grandiosity and illusions that we have about how we have somehow designed a life that has managed to sidestep this level of horrific pain um, and understand that it's circumstances, events, and, and this is a gift. You're imbued with a gift by a person who is willing to share. And not everybody is willing and ready to do that. You know, as a journalist, I can think of many times where I've approached someone 
and I've wanted them, I've asked them to open up about a horrific experience they've had. And they're not going to benefit from it. I mean, frankly, they're sharing their pain for the benefit of others, either to, you know, optimistically to learn, pessimistically Mm -hmm. to engage in pain porn. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, I always feel a little guilty (laughs) when I ask people to open up. I feel like I'm putting an unfair burden on them. Do you feel that? You know, in fairness, I I go on longer journeys with people. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is necessarily achievable in a in a in a one hour or two hour interview. I spend weeks with people, and you know, and and we end up having evenings of laughter and tears and fun and secrets, and Mm -hmm. and then of course there's the dubious area where you're inviting people to pay tickets to come and sit and digest stories and you have no control over how those stories are going to be digested because each person is so different but I am trying to get my hands on bending that that experience towards empathy. I mean you're creating a context for others to be witness people who may not have the the time the resources the expertise to spend weeks or months diving into the life of a person you distill it yes you're creating a trajectory and i'm listening and then i'm sorting through what i can feel in the barometer of myself will move me and i'm i'm trying to always step back step back step in step back and see how yes we can condense this experience so that the audience um, does not sympathize but empathize. And this is what really started happening with Nerbaya was in the aftermath of each show, um, people were just, it, it was one of the most, I mean, I've done quite a bit of testimonial theater now. I have never experienced the kind of electricity that was alive in that room each time we performed the work. Electricity may be an understatement. When I watched it, it felt more like a bolt of lightning. The play that Yael Farber, Pornajaganathan, and other women created recounts the events of that night. Jyothi boards a bus with a friend after seeing a movie. A group of men attack, rape, and murder her. And between these events, other actors come forward to tell their own stories of rape and sexual assault. What was once a sanctity of love is now utterly repulsive. I am not aroused, so it is unbearably painful. I wait for the pain to be over night after night after night. In audience talkbacks with you and the actors, people in the audience began for the first time sharing their stories of sexual violence and surviving. That's right. When we were in Edinburgh, um, one of the um, more respected newspapers said it's almost irresponsible (laughs) what we're doing because Hmm. people are left so shattered afterwards. And then when we went on tour, we began to create contexts, post-show talks. And in those contexts, uh, and this happened in India, it happened um, in different uh, countries that we toured to, uh, we would speak about how the shame is carried by the survivor instead of the perpetrator. It's the only crime where, through silence, 
shame gets transferred to the survivor. Um, and by speaking, you hand it back. You say, I will not carry this as my shame. I will speak because I have nothing to be ashamed of. I will not carry this shame collectively for the community. And, and so extraordinary things happened in those, in those um, talkbacks. Um, and people were breaking their silences. Um, this is a ritual. We create a darkened room. We reenact. People gather around this kind of um, water that they stare at a reflection of themselves. And then they begin to weep, first for the people on the stage and then for themselves. And then they begin to speak and they move out of the theater differently. You describe it as the crime where shame is transferred to the victim rather than the perpetrator. Explain that a little bit more. It's an incredibly astute observation about an exercise of power. This is a crime and a violation where something is taken against one's will, stolen, and the systemic response to this at every level is usually how this could have been avoided but for the ways in which we made ourselves available to this possibility. Or, quite simply, don't speak about that because it will shame your family um, depending on the culture you've grown up in, or you will have to go to court and you will be taken through an experience that will be worse than the rape itself. So just keep your silence. Your silence will protect you. And to some degree, that has become true within the system. But it is not a silence that can sustain. It finally begins, it's a corrosive silence. And there is something about speaking out that disowns what has been foisted upon that person. So after the show, audience members are breaking their own silence, which is, I mean, an incredibly intimate thing to do. Were you expecting that? What did it tell you? I was truly astonished every single night. Several hundred people would take up this invitation um, the evidence of the effectiveness of the work um, was so profoundly moving uh, and, and created in me an enduring um, conviction, if I didn't already have one, of the power of testimonial work and, well, quite simply, the, the act of telling the truth. If we tell the truth, will you, will you join us in the dark in your truth? And this is a kind of quiet revolution person by person, the shame of the perpetrator gets relocated back to the perpetrator where it belongs. Each night we also had a collection of NGOs that were affiliated with the production who were trained to um, assist with this um, in the aftermath of the show. I am her. She is me. And I know my silence all these years is part of what that dark night brought. This then. is my story. Trying 
trying to decide how much detail we shared about what actually happened on that bus, the physical violence of what they did to her. Yael is about to describe in some detail what the group of men on that bus did to the young woman that night. Yael's uncomfortable doing it, and it is very hard to hear. Yes, even now, um, you know, I... I hesitate to not say and to say what the actual uh, injuries were that were inflicted on her with a metal pole. With, uh, um, I'm, I'm going to say it, Arthi, but, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, as she was being raped, they just simply pulled away body parts that were starting to come out of her from the sheer violence and just carried on. And I repeat these details because we have eroticized sexual violence in porn, in advertising. There is no understanding of the reality, but it certainly perforated our comfortable distance that we had taken from these crimes. And that's why this particular one pushed through into the world and the streets of India rose for a period of time. have a sense when you step back about when a singular act of violence captures the collective, even the global imagination. The rape and mutilation of this young woman on a bus in New Delhi is one example. The fruit vendor in Tunisia setting himself on fire is another example. The execution of George Floyd is another example. Do you have a sense of when and why these single tragedies that that happen daily, routinely, in maybe less dramatic ways, do you have a sense of why and when these single tragedies erupt to capture all of our imaginations, to open up these collective pores? I think it's um, it's a conglomeration of various events timed that come together at a moment where things boil over. Some detail will capture the the collective attention of society, and the the heart bursts open. The collective heart bursts open. It's like a, an aperture that opens for a brief moment. And while mm. people are feeling, we got to get in there. And hence, you quit your job, you bring your five-year-old to India, and you make it happen. That's right. Because it's only going to be open for so long. Correct. It's timing. It's not going to happen mm. next year. It's not going to happen next week. It's right now. And for a brief minute, the world seems to care. Mm -hmm. And there was no other choice but to, um, to take up that invitation.
as a white woman leading in the creation and the direction of so many narratives with, you know, brown people, black people stories, how, mm-hmm. how do you do that? And, and are you ever worried about falling into like a sort of voyeurism or grief porn, you know? Of course. And, uh, you know, if, if one ever um, drops um, that vigilance, I think uh, it's an ever-present danger. Um, and I think also the question about who should be telling which stories now is a very, very relevant one. I don't have simple and easy answers to that, but I do know that how one understands one's role in that room. I think as um, as someone who is sometimes sitting on the outside of those stories, um, I'm aware of the levels of indifference that I grew up around. And I'm, I'm, I perhaps became aware of how we penetrate that. Yael is a workhorse. She's made 20 plays in a little over 20 years. And unlike a lot of other writer-directors, she tends to keep changing and developing her plays as they travel. She calls it monastic work. Her interests are wide-ranging, but a through-line in her work is a fixation on truth from the vantage point of the excluded. Last year, Yael did a reproduction of Hamlet. She cast as her lead an Ethiopian-Irish actress, Ruth Nega. That I, the son of a dear father, murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, fought. Ruth Nega, you connected me to her, and she described one morning where you know, she had imposter syndrome over playing Hamlet, which I thought was a little bit funny because I'm like, but you're an actor. How can you have imposter syndrome? The very nature of what you do is to be someone else, right? right. Um, but she described the sense of how can me as an Irish black female play this role for the pale white prince? She described being crumpled up on the floor one morning, just feeling the mammoth nature of the task at hand. Here's what she said. I just crumpled behind the um, costume rack (laughs) and she came behind with me and we just had this real big chat about what Hamlet means, what it means to me personally, you know, and my life as Ruth. My dressing room, she would paper my dressing room, Audrey Lord quotes, you know. If you don't define yourself, I mean, this is just for all artists and actually all women and black artists of color, especially. If you don't define yourself for yourself, then you will be crushed into others' fantasies of you and eaten alive. And the idea of, of owning my power, you know, and owning my right to be on stage as a brown Hamlet, a brown female Hamlet, you know, that's really extraordinary. And, and you know, when you meet kind of someone who can be that kind of leader, you know, you'll, you'll kind of follow them anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I remember that morning very well, and we had so many extraordinary mornings, but she was literally, <laughs> um, she's one of the most gifted artists I've ever worked with, and I, she, she didn't come into the rehearsal room, and I went outside, and I found her literally hiding <laughs> amongst the jackets under the clothing rack, crying, and I just climbed in there, <laughs> sat down with her under all the coats, and um, I just said, what's up? And yes, we started to speak, and she described her intense sense of loneliness and her intense sense of 
sufferance and a sense of the task being too big. And I said, and who lives this that you are living with each day? And she said, Hamlet. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the track that this young man is, is living through. The task is enormous. The injustice is outrageous. The, the agony is unwitnessed. His mother is indifferent, you know, as a metaphor for society. Um, Claudius is getting away with literal murder. Father has been killed. In other words, putting race and gender aside, the Irish Ethiopian had more in common with Hamlet and more business playing him than the white guys she imagined should have the role. And this idea of the imposter syndrome, I mean, I think most great artists have it where they believe that they've somehow fooled us into thinking that they can play the role and now they've got to do it. Hmm. To speak to an artist who is living the experience because they live so closely to the fire, they're at the coalface. And for Ruth to understand that she was already in there, she was speaking from the inside track. To sleep a chance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come. And we have shuffled off this mortal coil. Must give us pause. This is a deep joy for me to see how you can conflate these these realities into the power that can ignite on that stage and then the audience can watch Hamlet in a brand new way. Yael, you were fortunate to find your calling. I'm not saying it came easy, but you did find it as an empath, someone who was concerned with tragedies unfolding. You turn that into action in theater. What is your advice, like your actionable advice to people who, like you, are feelers but haven't quite found their path, their way to harness that into action? Mm. You know, I think part of that cocktail was a lot of anger. I felt a lot of anger. And I could feel how that can become a sort of a cannibalistic energy. And I think keep looking at yourself in the cold light of day. Where do I where do I belong? Not what do I need, but where am I needed? Where am I needed that I can bring these unique series of of, of capacities that I have to bear? Mm-hmm. You know, is it in in a woman's shelter? Is it creating something on stage? And then I think it's finding your people. You've got to seek out the people that are doing things that make your jaw drop. They're doing things that, and, and pursue them. Mm-hmm. And not to push the anger aside, but to say, this, this could light up a city, what I'm feeling. So I better find the socket that I've got to plug this into um, or I'm going to burn mm-hmm. myself down. And most of all, I think it's joy. Creating new work particularly is so much like giving birth. You're in the middle of it just thinking, why have I done this to myself? I cannot believe I'm putting myself through this pain. And then as soon as the child (laughs) comes out, you're like, I can do that again. And you're just holding this creature in your arms and you can't believe, even if it's imperfect, the miracle of what happened, that you, you were joined in this moment of humanity, collective humanity with a couple of people in a room who, who believe in what you do for a brief moment in time that, that you can tell a story that can impact in a way that can shift things.
my lessons from playwright Yael Farber. One, shame of being abused, of where you come from, of what you do for a living. It is a muzzle that helps the abuser or dominant power keep control over you. If you can create a space that breaks the shame, transforms it, you can help take that muzzle off for yourself and others. Two, be a servant. Don't just go poking around looking for places where you can feel important. Look for where your passion meets a genuine big need. Three, seize the day or the moment when the window opens, the light streams in, and the world seems to care. And then act quickly before it closes. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Paloma Moreno-Jimenez, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, touched you in some way, your brain or your heart, hit subscribe. It's a button that's right there on your screen. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts they matter. Tell your friends and family. Let me know what you think. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411, A-A-R-T-I 411. You can send me guest suggestions as well, or you can email artofpower at wbez.org with your guest ideas. Thanks so much. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.